Yeah, I'm trying to minimalize all my shit right now. I'm actually selling all of my synths because I'm just like really. Yeah, I'm just done with hardware. Like, or I'm sell me your yeah. rack. Yeah, you want it? Yeah, sure. Thirty yeah, bucks. I mean, no, uh, and yeah. a Lambo ride. <laughs> all right, all right. Now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Mr. Bill Podcast. I'm Bill's manager, Anand Harsh. I'm also editor-in-chief of TheUnce.com. Some of you may have noticed that we're moving to one episode a week as things start to open up and Bill gets busier. We'll have this strange thing called tour dates to announce on subsequent episodes, though it's not going to be anything like before, I'll tell you that much. Not that anyone's going to be complaining. I'd give anything to see a third-tier jam band in a church basement with six kids smoking cloves and jinkos right about now. We've been thrilled with our run of guests lately. Today's episode features an old friend of Bill's. Please welcome metal god Misha Mansoor of the progressive act Periphery. The band has released four full-length albums over the past decade, countless EPs and singles, played with everyone from Meshuggah and the Deftones to the Dillinger Escape Plan and Dream Theater. Mansoor himself started as a solo act, Bulb, and is a talented producer on top of his six-string skills, having produced the self-titled debut album from Animals as Leaders. The guys talk fast cars and real estate, mixing EDM and metal, and Bill selling his modular rig to Misha. Super fun episode. We're doing super weird things in the Patreon, as subscribers will find out in the next week. Trying to keep things fun and fresh for our subs while the world literally burns outside. Patrons get early access to episodes, bonus content, super secret merch bundles, Discord roles, and more. Visit patreon.com slash MrBillsTunes to subscribe. Finally, please head over to MrBillsTunes.com to sign up to become a hardcore able tenere. You get full access to Bill's project files and tutorials, access to nearly 30 sample packs, and so much more. All right, here's Bill's chat with Misha Mansoor. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm reading his second book now too. So it's this dude called Russell Brunson. He's like basically some marketing expert guru guy who's made like fucking shit, shit tons of money by... He started out making a ton of money by selling um, these DVDs on how to make potato guns. So basically like he went online. This was in, I don't know, the early 2000s before like YouTube was a big thing or whatever. Like when getting 10,000 views on a video was considered like viral. Um, and he, he basically like went on all these forums, figured out how to make potato guns. Then he got a, like just a handheld phone camera, I guess, or like a, a DSLR or some shit and went to Home Depot and like filmed himself buying all the PVC pipe and all the glue and like all that shit and like made a video of himself, like how to, how to make a, a potato gun and then just sold it online with like really wow. good marketing on like how to build a potato gun. And all he was selling was this garbage fucking recorded video on how to do a thing. And um, he made a bunch of money that way. And then he was like, oh, yeah, I could actually like figure this shit out. And the way he figured it all out was um, 
by subscribing to every single junk mail thing he could. So he'd, his parents would get like one letter in the mail and he'd get like piles of just junk mail basically. Right. And he'd go through it all and like read it and try and figure out what they were doing with the marketing to emotionally manipulate people to buy shit basically. And then he kind of like reverse engineered it all and like he'd just stay up all night watching infomercials and stuff like that. So he's kind of like just this marketing dude. And yeah. That's, so, that's awesome. I, yeah, I want to read or listen to that now. It's pretty That's good, awesome. yeah. I'm, I'm like three quarters through his second book now. So I've been learning a lot about marketing. So is, what did you pick up? What's the main things that you've picked up? Um, that you have to figure out where somebody is on the buying chain, whether or not they're cold, warm, or hot. Mm-hmm. So basically you need to figure out whether or not they're desire aware or problem aware or product aware. Right. And then depending on where they are on that chain, you need to market to them differently. Yeah. And one thing that I didn't know, which is um, kind of crazy, is the difference between qualifying subscribers from buyers. So, um, for instance, I do this shit all the time, right? Well, like you'll sign up for something like Hulu and they'll ask you to put your credit card information in for like a 14-day trial. And yeah. they'll, uh, they'll be like, oh, and then we'll charge you after the trial, right? Um, <clears throat> and I always thought that this was just like a lazy man's tax. Like you put your credit card information in and then they're basically preying on people who forget to... Yeah, that's what I thought too. Yeah, it's not actually for that reason. The reason they do that is to qualify a buyer from a subscriber. So they're they're like, all right, this guy has put his credit card information in. He's now a a buyer and we'll market to him as such because they're like, he's willing to put the credit card information in. That means he's willing to buy, you know? Interesting. So yeah, so you just separate the two. You find some sort of step that separates the two. Yeah, like you know what a a funnel is, right? Like a marketing funnel. Yeah, Yeah, of course. um, yeah, so you'll have like two different kinds of funnels, one for sub- subscribers that you've qualified as subscribers and a subscriber yeah. is just someone who's willing to give you their email address basically or willing yep. to like you on social media. And mm-hmm. then and then you have a whole different funnel for buyers. Yeah, and you know, like on the marketing end, this is where we have like super specialized people who, you know, basically, uh, you know, uh, design our funnels and... Uh, and they optimize them and you know it's all very data driven at this point they give you all these platforms give you so much in the way of analytics mm. to where like you know you can you can audit this stuff fairly easily now and if you know what you're doing this is where i'd say the art form comes in you know it's something that i'm i don't know how to do because one it's like its own full-time job if you want to do it really well and and two, it's like it's a it's an art form. There's people who know how to do it, but there's people who execute it better than others. Um, but like, yeah, it's like made me gain a lot of respect for people in that field because there's some people who are so brilliant at that stuff. It's kind of insane, and they become like very specialized in like doing like email funnels and things like that, which will just print money if you do it right. You'll, you'll have the exact same product, and that's the that's the interesting thing is you'll have the same product. But I remember like when I worked sales, like my first, my first like real job was, was sales, worked at Radio Shack on commission, you know? And I remember like, like my manager there taught me a really important lesson, which, which has always stuck. And, and, you know, I took well to sales uh, and I always enjoyed it. But like, I remember he was saying, it's not about convincing people to buy stuff. It's just about knowing your, you know, the chances are you have a product that solves some problem that they have, or they don't even realize they have. So the more you know about the products, the more you can have the conversation where, where you know, because like, it would always be like, oh, do you want a new phone? We'd always make a lot of money with new phones, you know, or selling phones, right? That's how you made the most money. So they'd be like, no, I'm not interested. 
you know, and then there was like a series of questions that you could ask, like, you know, does your phone this, do you have a problem with this? And almost universally, people would have problems with X, Y, and Z. And these were things that the, the cell phone companies were very aware of. So they were fixing these things. So then the newest models would be like, well, actually that, now we have this or this or that. So now you don't have to deal with this or that. And they'd be like, oh, really? You know, and then once you get one of those, then you've got them hooked. And now you can start selling to them. And it's not about convincing them to buy something they don't want because they can just return it the next day. So you you shouldn't waste your time with some like trying to convince someone that they need something that happened a few times. And I was like, oh, wow, that was a waste of time. I wasted like an hour convincing this person that they needed this thing. They didn't. And then they went and returned it and I didn't make any money. So it's it's more about like identifying like solutions for people's problems and just being super aware of stuff. So we all this stuff is basically kind of doing that at scale, you know? And that's why you say like, like separating the subscribers from the buyers, um, you know, basically look at who's browsing and who's ready to buy. And then you can market to them differently. For one of them, you're like, Hey, are you aware? And for the other one, it's like, all right, let's close this deal um, and get some accessories on it too, you know? So it's pretty interesting stuff. Sounds like I should, uh, I love, I love learning about this stuff. So I, I feel like you can never learn too much about this stuff. So, oh, cat, look at that. <laughs> yes, my pet cat YouTube. Um, yeah, I mean, I kind of started reading about it because, like, uh, I, I talked to you about this the other day. I'm, like, putting a sample pack out, so I wanted to sort of, like, market it properly. But also I'm just, like, uh, curious from a, like, consumer's perspective, mm -hmm. like, what's happening. And um, from what I've noticed is... Like I've learned a bunch of shit that happens to me, like for instance, putting the credit card details thing in that I wasn't aware of before. Like I wasn't aware that this was a part of a marketing sequence. I thought it was just like a logistical thing, right? Like putting credit yeah. card details in. Yeah, I thought the same thing too. I didn't know that. Yeah, and then there's things that are obviously marketing, right? Like creating a sense of urgency for webinars and shit. Like you'll um <laughs> you'll sign up to like a webinar thing and then they'll like have some email that pings you being like, we're waiting for you right now in the webinar. <laughs> oh, damn. I don't like, know about that whole side of things. That, that That's pretty nuts. But, you know, <laughs> you you have a subscriber. We like like none of my companies do a subscriber thing, really. Um, it's technically my, my coffee company does, but it's not an aggressive thing. And it's a very small coffee company right now. So everything else is like pretty much just direct sales. Um, but once you have like the subscriber model, then, then things change. And, and I feel like the subscriber model is a really smart thing. If you can maintain it, like it's good that you're doing it, but there obviously has to be different ways to market to new customers and to maintain existing customers. So probably, yeah. probably good to I'll probably pick your brain about that stuff down the line, you know? Yeah. The subscriber thing is cool. I've been doing it for a long time. Um, pretty much I've just like whatever I just do in my day-to-day -day life I try and figure out like how I can turn it into a piece of content to just keep giving to people right so for instance I stream on Twitch all the time mm -hmm. so one thing I offer to my subscribers uh, or rather one thing that I like um, withhold from the general public is the streams that I do on Twitch I don't leave them up as like rewatchable things Mm. I instead just put them on my website so only subscribers can watch them. Interesting. Um, and, you know, if I, like, write a new song or release the project file on my website or um, if I, you know, uh, make you know, a new tutorial or something and there's, like, a element of that tutorial, like a rack that I used in there or some samples that I used in there, I'll make those only av available to subscribers and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of cool. The, the reason I originally did that is because when I first started doing music... Uh, like, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, I was like, fuck, how do you turn this into a wage? Because I was like kind of looking at the numbers and I was like, 
how do you um, like turn music sales into a wage? You really have to be selling a lot of music and then you kind of need to be putting shit out like a lot. You'd have to be putting out like at least an album a year or something. Otherwise, like you'll get these giant fluctuations in income, right? You're so getting like, into this dangerous conversation that always seems to find its way into every podcast I talk about, about like the difficulty of making money in this in this scene and dude you're at a massive advantage because you know it's basically just you and if you i don't know if you have a manager or business manager or anything like that you know or partners or whatever they may take a cut but it's not like splitting it five ways you know Um, yeah definitely yeah band man so i had jordan rudis on the podcast the other day from dream theater and um yeah he was talking about how (laughs) they will like dream theater will go do a tour in like asia or something like that it'll be like a 30 or 50 day tour or something insane um, and they'll have to do like 14 or so shows before they even break even and start yeah, making any money. Absolutely. And then once they break even, they have to split the money five ways plus pay like crew and all that stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, like the breakdown of how it looks for periphery. And this is why internationally it's so hard for us uh, to, to be profitable is just the cost. You know, like the, the thing people love to look at the guarantees and like the ticket prices and all that. Like, oh, they're making this much. And like completely disregard like things like costs <laughs> and <Right. laughs> and payouts and taxes and things like that. So the way it'll work is like, yeah, there'll be a big take for a show, but it costs a lot to put that show on because the bus costs a lot and you have to have a bus because that's the only thing that can uh, take a trailer that's that that's big enough to have your production. And you have to have production because you can't charge that much and just, you know, play a show with no production whatsoever. Uh, and as you up in production, you have to maintain that. It's very tough to go backwards, you know? So so now, yes, you are charging more, but it's basically all going into production. We'll be very lucky. Um, on a U.S. tour, we can have it to where, like, our guarantees will, like, basically have us breaking even, and then we can start making money off merch. But with everything else, like, like anything that's uh, international, like... We're starting in the red and we're hoping to break even with merch and maybe make a little bit on top, you know? And so there is that point where it's like, okay, you know, we finally hit break even (laughs) today, like halfway through a tour or two thirds of the way through the tour. If we do at all, you know, there's some tours where we're just in the red and we're like, okay, well, this was an investment for next time. But if we do have a take, you know, so they look like a, like a sum of money. And then it's like, okay, now you got to pay out your business manager and your manager and you know, your booking agents already taken his cut. And then after that, our business manager does like up to a 40% tax hold back. So even if let's say, let's say we have a really good take and, and we, you know, managed to take away $10,000 a piece, we only see 6,000 of that, you mm-hmm. know? Um, the other that- crazy cost that I learned about the other day, cause I mean, we share the same business manager now, right, Mark? Oh yeah, um, yeah. Oh, you so Scribner's. Uh, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. That's he's good. my he's my business manager he's now. The, also. He's, he's been my guy for a while. He's the best. <clears throat> yeah, he's awesome. Um, but yeah, one thing I realized the other day, he's like, yeah, if you're going to be touring a lot, you probably want to get like some insurance, right? Like some liability insurance and some. Oh, life. you don't have insurance. Well, I've never needed it because I mean it's just me, right? And um, yeah, I'm not traveling around, and I still don't need it. And we had this conversation, and we came to the conclusion that I probably don't need it because it's like okay. super, super low risk for me. But, but I thought about it, and I thought about it in the sense of like bands, for instance, like Periphery, um, and it's just an insane cost because I mean, obviously, you want to have all your gear protected in case something gets stolen or broken right. or anything right, like exactly. that. And then on top of that, it's like liability insurance because you guys are like headlining a lot of shows, right? So. 
if you're headlining the show and you're also kind of behaving as the promoter of the show to some degree, then a lot of the liability falls on you if somebody gets hurt at that show, right? It's one of these things where like, this is a very litigious country and there's a lot of gray areas. Nothing's happened so far and nothing happens to most bands, but it's like, ultimately you look at it as like a relatively small <laughs> cost. Uh, bless you, I think. Or Daniel no, sold the hell. Uh, um, so the, all the fires here have been yeah. like, Causing the air to be horrible, so my throat is fucked up. Yeah, stop setting the country on fire, dude. That, yeah. that last mixtape I heard. Was that? <laughs> no, but uh, like, like the liability thing is interesting because ultimately, if someone cho- chooses to sue you, you know, they can make your life pretty miserable. It's very, it's a very expensive prospect. So it's just protections against someone who wants to be difficult. I think if someone gets hurt, uh, like, you know, perhaps if you like cause someone injury like i don't know like if spencer were to do something dumb like like say hey everyone go beat up that guy and he gets beat up you know and then has medical bills yeah sure like that's your fault obviously who would never do anything like that Mm. um but like you know i'd say that that would be maybe a clear-cut example but like short of that sometimes people get injured in the pit they'll be like oh well there was a mosh pit because it was a heavy part you know it's like well don't go in the mosh pit. <laughs> you don't. You absolutely yeah. don't have to be anywhere near it. Yeah, um, that's the other thing with the electronic music scene is there's never a mosh pit. Um, you just get like, trampled. Not not an electronic music show. What's it's that like, thing? What's that? What's that side? Well, I, see, I see him headbanging like oh, the, rail, the barricades. What rail is that? riding? Yeah, it's called yeah. riding the rail. Do they do that at your shows? Sometimes. I mean, not so much because I don't play rhythm. That's more of like a thing that people do at a rhythm show oh, okay. which is basically like very quarter note heavy dubstep right 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 um so you could just headbang yeah exactly or like, like ba- bass or nectar whatever. shows like people were doing that a lot at, at bass nectar shows oh interesting Dude, did you hear what happened he he resigned from his career why because he got outed as being a statutory rapist like oh, he really? He had like this thing where he'd just like constantly be sleeping with 17 year old women and then like a bunch of evidence came out um about that and then he, he was that's like, so right. weird that's so weird to me by the way the 17 year old thing because it's like how it must be a mental thing because it's like you wouldn't look that different if you're just going for the 18 year old just go for the 18 year old you know like why is that like that must be something where he's like oh i love that you're 17 i'm gonna actively chase that. i don't know you know? Yeah, I think it's something to do with that. It's like some taboo shit that's like... Maybe, maybe. Who knows how the brain works? We're weird. But like, you know, that sucks. That sucks all around, I guess. So he had to quit music? Well, he, yeah, I mean, he, he didn't... Yeah, I don't know. He chose to quit music. I don't know if he had... If he if he didn't, I don't know what would happen, though. Like, They don't have Ableton in prison. No, they don't. Well, maybe they do, in, maybe they do in base neck to prison. Like maybe, <laughs> maybe they do it. I bet in Sweden they have Ableton in prison so that like Varg can make music. Um, <laughs> by the way, before we go too far down this path, I did want to ask you, just going on the marketing thing, did you watch that Social Dilemma uh, no. documentary? No, but somebody told me last night while I was streaming that I should. Yeah. Uh, I kind of, I kind of, well, I saw it was ironically of all things trending on, on Netflix. Uh, and I saw people talking about it. So, so I was like, okay, I'll just watch like the first five minutes of this. And then I ended up watching the whole thing. Um, it's really fascinating stuff. It's stuff you probably know or suspected, but 
at least for me, maybe I was just ignorant to some of the uh, like of how deep this goes. And it's like kind of like all stuff that you knew that the tools were there. But like, it's just crazy. The um, It's all data. It's like the, the, the just the granular granularity of the data collection and what they can do with it and what they do with it. And it's interesting because, you know, we are taking advantage of this model, but we are also, you know, victims or both. We're both uh, profiting and victims of this model. Uh, mm. And it's an interesting thing. I don't entirely know how I feel about it. And I also don't entirely know what would change. I'd, I'd love to have a discussion with you after, um, after you see it because I'd be really curious what your thoughts are. Well, I know a little bit about this already. Like I know, for instance, um, Facebook can like watch where your cursor is on the screen with like a heat map and see how f- like long you're hovering over certain parts of the screen and stuff like that. And then yeah, but that, I, I knew that because we do that with our websites. <laughs> like right, that's yeah, exactly. that's that's pretty that's pretty common stuff. More like how Instagram like little things like the fact that like Instagram refreshes and you swipe down was not an accident. It was basically they were studying addictive behaviors and they're like oh it can basically emulate the the same feeling that you get from like a slot machine in a casino and Mm. there were active efforts to make social media as addictive as possible you know this is and this is more the stuff that that i know where it's like the product is uh is the consumer and the customer is the advertisers even though people think it would be the other way around yeah Um, yeah, it's very much set up the case where but just the degree to which they were going to try to engage people, like literally, literally using like, you know, sort of advanced psychological tactics that like casinos use and that other addictive, um, uh, addictive things will use to try to entice people to, to uh, enter and stay uh, and, and just recreate these, uh, these behavior patterns and things like that. I, I thought that was all really interesting. I mean, and kind of kind of dark. Yeah, and so Jeron Jeron Lenier, he has a book called Delete Your Social Media, and he yeah. says something in there which is, um, if if the thing you're using on the internet is free, then you're most likely the product. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and and that's that's very. They say that in that they say that as well, which is like a very insightful way of looking at it. Yeah, you know? was Jeron Jeron Lenier in this documentary? I think so. I I don't know. Um, maybe who is he? He's like there's a lot of people. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, he wrote a book on it and he's like one of the, I don't know, people who's a big proponent of like, fuck social media. There was this um, experiment done on rats, I want to say, a long time ago where they would, um, they would give the rats a uh, like button and they could push the button and they would get a treat, right? And when they set it up in such a way that every time the, the button was pressed, a treat would come out the rats would like just press it when they wanted a treat. Um, But when they did it in a such a way where when you press the button, a treat might come out or it might not come out. So it was random. The rats would like obsessively press it because Mm. like apparently um, dopamine is like one of the things you like the most, right? It's like your brain when dopamine is triggered, you're like, oh, sick. Um, And when when dopamine is expected and you get it it's good but when dopamine is gotten randomly it's the best (laughs) (laughs) and that's why um the i think it's the like the notification thing on facebook was designed in that way where like you'll constantly log in because you won't know whether or not you have a notification Mm -hmm. and it's kind of random in that way and then like when, when you do have it it's like the dopamine hit is so much bigger 
You know, I'd say I, I was always one step ahead on uh, the social media thing by accident. But just because like, you know, I'm sure you get the same thing, too, where you just have a lot of followers or whatever. So my notifications are off on everything. And they've always been because it would just be too crazy on my phone. The only thing I get notifications for are like text messages and emails, unfortunately. So I am still hooked a little bit. But I mean, I don't I don't enjoy social media necessarily. I I do it. And I'm, I'm assuming you, it's the same for you. You kind of have to like our businesses revolve around it. Uh, now, now they're sort of inextricably linked. So, you know, they, they would not fundamentally function without, without them. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of locked into this thing and I, I sort of see, that's why that movie was so unnerving for me because it's like kind of watching this thing, which you know is terrible for you and that you can't really escape from it. I don't think anyone really can escape from it. I think that person, the person that you're talking about, is he like this sort of like hippie looking dude with dreads? Like, yep. this, yeah, yeah. OK, he's definitely in there. And he was like, even at the end, uh, he was like, you know, I know I'm not going to conv- convince most people, but even if I convince a few, I'm like, you know, that's good. And like the awareness is is the other half. It's like it's one thing to to be a victim of this and not even be aware of what's happening. If you're still a victim of it, but at least you understand the algorithms and the patterns and the things that are happening and you have an awareness of that, at least that's one degree of sort of protection because you, you may try to be a bit more careful in, in how you, 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 what you're intaking from it. Yeah. Um, so I did a thing a while ago cause I, I understand like the way the dopamine shit is working and how going to social media and seeing a thing is like giving me dopamine. So I spent like a, a couple of days a few years ago just going through like my entire instagram uh list of people who i follow and just muting all of their accounts and then going through my entire twitter f- followers and muting everyone there and then going through my entire facebook friends and muting everyone there too so like when i because you know like one thing you can do is you can get those feed blockers like it's an extension for chrome or whatever Um, but I was noticing that like when I'd put the feed blocker on my computer and not on my phone, I would just end up checking it on my phone and, and, Mm. uh, doom scrolling on my phone. Um, and then I would, I would notice that, yeah, there was just like one way or another, I would, I would get around it. So I was like, this is the only way that I can get around having a feed at all and not unfollowing everyone. Cause then I'll have to have a bunch of awkward conversations where people are like, why'd you unfollow So basically you have no feed anymore for anything, right? Yeah. And no matter what device I check it on, it's like that. Oh, interesting. Put in like a lot of days worth of that's effort. A, that's the next through. level. What I did was I customized my feed. So like I have a, uh, I have a habit of just blocking anyone. There's like a lot of like negativity on social media. So I just block those people or I just not block or I just remove them from my feed rather like unfollow or whatever. Um, and I find that my feed is mostly positive and it's mostly just car stuff at nice. this point. <laughs> yeah, we should talk about cars, man. So, like, I don't think people, like, I know people know that you're into cars, but I didn't, yeah, I didn't realize, like, how sick being in a car that, what was the one that we went in? Was it a Ferrari or a Lamborghini? Uh, Lamborghini. Yeah. yeah. Dude, that shit was insane. Yeah, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you liked it. I will say I've gotten quite a bit faster since we... Uh, since we last went. <laughs> Why would you want to go faster than that? I don't know. Maybe it's that dopamine thing, you know? Maybe it's like... I think that's an adrenaline thing, actually. It's, well, maybe, but I'm sure I'm sure it's linked. I feel good in that car. You definitely get a, adrenaline. 
But like, so two two things I realized, or, or that I didn't realize beforehand, is one, when you're in a car, going that fast around a corner, it's like a core workout because you have to like yes. hold your torso up because it's just throwing you. Yeah, around. yeah, you'll be tired by the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, like there's a fucking handle in the car on the passenger side to hold on to for this. Yeah, reason. I call it the oh shit handle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and secondly, yeah, I don't think people realize like how it feels to be in a Lamborghini with that much pickup and like that much, uh, like how, how, you know, it just sticks to the road around corners and shit. I don't yeah. think people realize like how insane that feels to, <laughs> to be. It's a pretty insane feeling. So, I mean, I'd say there's, there's a group of people and, and at, for a while I was pretty apprehensive about people even knowing that I had that car because it sends the wrong message and, and Lamborghinis tend to be also a car that's like a status thing or like a way to flex on people. Um, but the one I got in particular, the, the Huracan Performante, is really a driver's car, um, funny enough. And one of the things that it can do in particular is take a corner in a pretty ridiculous way, in a way that most cars cannot, which is why I opted for that car, you know, specifically and why I was sort of lusting after it. it was like what it could do around a corner is pretty much like a next level kind of thing, you know? Um, but yeah, like I think until people are in the, you know, what's funny is like you can post videos from inside the car and people will be like, Oh, looks like you're cruising. Like it doesn't look that fast. Yeah. You don't really understand until you're in it. And then you don't feel the G forces and the G forces are real because we were, you know, we were pulling over a G every corner uh, so that's like, basically like you're sitting on yourself in every corner, <laughs> you know? So that's why you're getting that core workout. And, you know, now I'm going a little faster. It's like, you just want to see what the car can do safely. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a, it's an exhilarating thing. If you have like roads that you can take advantage of. And in some ways, like, I feel like I'm actually using the car for what it was built to do. I am pushing it, you know, especially these days, uh, close to its limit. Uh, and you know, I would never judge anyone for just buying the car for the looks, you know, it's a stunning looking car and it does, if you're into the social stuff and, and, and into that side of things, you know, it's a, it's a good car for that, I suppose. But like, for me, like, it's like all compromises are justified for what that thing can do on a good road or track or whatever. And, you know, if you have access to that, I feel like, you know, you get this, this machine and then you're actually using it to its full potential. You're not just like it's in the garage or let it be like pretty in front of a restaurant, you know, valet parked or whatever. Hmm. What What is the process for buying a car like that? Um, <laughs> I, I imagine it's not the same as like, so my, the process I've bought every one of my cars with is like, I literally go on the internet to like car sales.com or some right. shit and like find some like secondhand GMC Envoy or like a Subaru Forester or something. And then I'm like, all right, yeah, this is $3,000. This looks like it'll last a year or two. <laughs> this, this looks good. Cool. <laughs> and then I, I buy it. And, I mean, I, I mean, it can be, it can be as simple as that. What are we spraying? Uh, my cat always tries to pour at my speaker cones. Oh, so that's not I good. I don't And those actually, are the barefoots? Yeah. Oh, so, <laughs> So I, I, this is my like little gun. I just, I don't actually have to spray her anymore. I just have to pick it up and point it at her. And then she's like, all right, no, we're, we're, all right. we're good. We're chill. Oh, those poor barefoots. 
Um, uh, they're, they're fine. They haven't actually been messed up at all by it, but yeah, I have to be careful. You do have to be careful. Those are expensive speakers. Um, so yeah, I, I imagine you don't just like go onto a website and be like, uh, I'm going to buy this car and then give them whatever. So you, like. you could. The thing about buying a car is it can be very simple. I say I'd, I'd probably overcomplicate it uh, for a number of reasons, but I am an enthusiast and I do like to get good deals on things. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, a car is a depreciating asset. So I understand that like spending money on cars is an irresponsible thing to do. You know, it's not a financially responsible thing ever. Yeah, like you know, my dad's an my car. dad's an economist. He hates he <laughs> hates that I buy these cars. Yeah, so if you, if you buy a Lambo for like three hundred grand, like what's it worth a year later? Well, that depends. That depends a lot. You know, like on on which one it is. And I do a lot of research on this. So, you know, for example, a Lambo that's worth 300,000, maybe a year later, might be worth 270, 280. Now, that seems like a lot of money lost. If you look percentage wise, you know, that's that's not too bad. But, you know, it's just you have to think about this stuff up, up front. If you get a McLaren, could be worth 200,000. Know? Uh, so different different cars will lose different values. So this is where I say I get very uh very sort of uh, obsessive with, with that side. I figure if I'm going to be irresponsible, I might as well try to do it as responsibly as possible. So step one, I learn everything I can about the market. By the time I bought the, the, the Huracan, I knew everything about the market. I knew where it was at six months before, maybe even a year before, and where it was there. So I was always trying to plot the uh, depreciation. And, and, and that way I could sort of calculate like where, wh- how much I could expect to lose, right? Um, and then, um, I, I, if you showed me like three pictures, I could tell you like pretty much every option it had. And I knew what options I wanted. I knew which ones probably would help with the value and which ones did not count for a damn thing, you know? Um, and then at that point, you know, once you've, then you have to find the car, which could take a while with these. Cause it's like, they're, they're rare. So you want to find the spec you like, I buy them used. I don't buy these new cause let someone else take the hit. These cars will depreciate more in that first year, first year and a half, right? Let someone else take the hit. But yeah, like once it, once you find the car, then then you could just go and uh, you know it could be as simple as you just show up with a check for the for the cash and you pay it, right? Or what I like to do, um, since since money is so cheap now, is I like to finance it. Um, and you gotta be careful with this stuff because there are people who will look at financing almost like a, a credit card or something. They're like, okay, well, but in the bad way of using a credit card, it's like, well, I can't afford, I don't have the cash for this car and I can't afford this car, but I can afford the monthly payment, you know? And they're like, okay, well then I can have a Lamborghini or Ferrari or whatever in my garage if I pay this much a month and I think I can swing that, but they don't have the cash. Uh, they maybe have enough for a down payment and then the, the monthly payments. And that's, you know, I'm not going to say don't do that, but that's a very risky game that you're playing there. And it will also mean that you're paying more for the car because you're paying the car plus interest. What I like to do is uh, I think I got a loan at like uh, 3.24% on the Lambo, right? So now instead of paying cash, I could take all the liquidity that I freed up by not paying cash, by just putting the, the, you know, the down payment in and making the monthly payments and invest it. 
And I can be 3.24 in my sleep. Anyone can. You can you can beat that just by putting it in a S&P yeah, like, 500 yeah, uh, like a index fund. stock or something. Yeah. Like the literal safest stock that you, you know, it's the top 500 uh, companies. It's like, you know, they're not going out of business. Even if one does, you've got 499. But yeah, Apple's not going out of business. Netflix is, you know, Facebook, all these companies. Uh and and they perform well. You can at least count on like five to six percent. But lately, the stock market's been crushing it. Yeah, and then COVID happened. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's I mean, like, of course, there's a risk. It's all unpredictable. But like, I'm assuming that you're doing a six year term, or not six year, sorry, a, a, a sixty month. So that's like a like a five year term. Uh, and uh, you know, I think they even have a seventy two month term. So what I always look is for that that delta of like the uh the lowest the lowest interest payment with the longest term if you plan on keeping it that whole time because then you could just beat it every year and you'll actually pay less money than cash plus if you invest well you might start to make money against it so right now as things stand on the lambo i'm pretty much at the break even point i might even if i were to sell it right now i might even net a little bit even accounting for insurance and running costs and whatever. But that's just because I got lucky because the stock market did really well this year, you know? And I also made a really risky investment that's kind of paying off. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, like, that's that's my sort of philosophy behind it. And then, you know, I could clickbait, have a free Lamborghini for, for a bunch of years, you know? Um, so, so, and this is also with the mentality that most people are buying these cars are not keeping them for more than like a couple of years. They usually swap them out every, you know, at the latest every three years. It's when you say, um, you say when you, when you clickbait, you mean like sell that information on how to do it to other people? No, I'm just saying like, it sounds like, like, here's how I got a free Lamborghini. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, And I'm sure there are people who sell this information. I'll just tell you, like, it's, it's pretty simple, but you need to have you need to have the at least most of the 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 capital. You need to have some money left over to invest against it. If you're putting all your money into paying the financing, then you're paying the interest, and then you're paying more for the same car, which I refuse to do. I want to get a good deal, and so this is the thing: is I want to get in at a good price, and then calculate like where my exit point will be, and then I'll know how much I lost, and that's how much I have to earn against it. Um, but then I got kind of lucky. I, I it's, There's the weirdest thing that's going on right now. And it's not really going to affect me because I'm not going to sell the car right now. But COVID created a weird luxury bubble. And I think it's because half the people, you know, lost everything. And that sucks, which created uh, stimulus opportunities. But then the other half either stayed the same or are making more money. I bet business is booming for you right now. And it's, yeah, it's doing OK, actually. Um, I wouldn't say booming. I mean, it was doing it's doing, I think, about. This, like COVID hasn't affected me. Right. Uh, but I don't so, think it's doing like better. So, but that's amazing, right? Like this, this worldwide pandemic that has destroyed businesses is not negatively affecting you. Well, and I, now actually, you- I, I should, I should restate before we go any further. Um, it hasn't affected my online businesses. It's obviously yeah. affected my shows. Yeah. Yeah. Ob- well, yeah, that goes without saying same here, but like, uh, you know, our merch sales are up, uh, and there, and the streams are up. It's like there, there's like, Honestly, like it's it's not been it's not been so bad for for the the businesses. Anything that sort of manufacturing does get affected, unfortunately, but all the digital stuff does well. Um, but then you also have access to like low interest rates on loans. So 
it's creating this bubble where a lot of people are like, oh, maybe now's the time to buy this thing. And then you actually get like bidding wars on housing. There's like crazy bidding wars going on. Like you'd think housing would be at its lowest. Nope. It's in a bubble right now. Uh, there's all these interesting luxury bubbles happening. Um, cars are up. Luxury cars especially. Like you're looking at sub- certain certain cars. They So so the, the Lambo just gained 15 to 20K in value. Um, so jump back up close to what I paid for it. Again, I don't care because I, I want to keep the car, but if I were to sell it now, yeah, probably with the stuff I've invested against it, uh, invested against it, I probably would be positive at this point. I probably would make a little bit of money uh, by having gotten the car. Of course, the opportunity cost and where my dad would get mad is he's like, you could have just invested all that and made way more, but <laughs> I wouldn't have the happiness that that car's, car brings me. So again, irresponsible, but I try to do it responsibly. Um, yeah, I would say that seems pretty responsible. I mean, yeah, it doesn't seem like you're risking anything. It seems like, I mean, no. you know, obviously from an economist perspective, yeah, it's always going to seem dumb. Because When your dad's an economist, you know, anything other than investing money is dumb. And he loves housing. So it's like, oh, you should be buying a house or whatever. And I'm like, no. <laughs> I mean, I already have a, I already have like a, a, a place in DC that I own and that place costs me money. So, you know, it's not that simple anymore. I think the housing thing, I have another little rant prepared for you, but I think the housing thing is also a bit of a, uh, you know, at my most charitable, I think it's just boomers trying to give good advice to uh, to, to us for what worked for them. Well, actually, um, I heard something, sorry to cut you off, but like I heard something the other day about like how um, boomers who like spent shitloads of money on stuff, like say dining room tables, right? Who yeah. thought like, oh yeah, we'll pass this down through like generations. It's like this super expensive piece of furniture. Well, now all the millennials are like trying to live minimally and have like as little shit as possible basically. So they're like basically having to give away all this expensive shit for free at this point because no one will take it. Dude, it is so funny that you say that because that is literally like, this has become one of my new things to add. You know, I told you I was real busy. This is one of my new stresses in my life. I'm trying to help my parents manage this move because they're trying to, you know, they have this big house that we, that we grew up in, in Bethesda. And I'm like, you guys don't need a big house. You should live closer to your grandkids and live in a, in a small condo. And like, uh, it'll be nice, you know, and you won't have stairs and you really don't need much space. It'll be left to clean, less to clean. And they're, and they're going for it. So then they have this house full of, full of shit. And they're like, so do you want any of this stuff? And I'm like, most of it no and even some of the stuff i want like okay you've got this beautiful dining table but i don't have space for that i don't do dining tables you know <laughs> like yeah it's like and, millennials just all eat on the couch and shit anyway yeah and i'm gonna take their couch maybe it barely fits but it's like it's a nice couch mine's mine's wrecked but that's the only reason why if my couch was working i'd be like no sorry it's a really really nice couch because yeah they're like yeah we'll keep it forever um but it probably won't fit in their next place and it's you know, it's barely going to fit in mine. So, so that's a very, that's a very real thing. I'm, I'm not surprised. Yeah. I'm trying to minimalize all my shit right now. I'm actually selling all of my synths. Cause I'm just like, really? Yeah. I'm just done with hardware. Like, or I'm sell me your yeah. rack. Yeah. You want it? Yeah. Sure. 30 yeah, bucks. I mean, uh, and yeah. a Lambo ride. <laughs> all right all right now we're getting somewhere <laughs> i don't know i always wanted to get into modular okay before we get sidetracked on the modular stuff because you can teach me all about that in a second uh i did want to say on the housing stuff i do think that there's 
a weird thing going on because like i look at my parents and the, and the house that they bought and how much it's worth now and like you know that happened to, to all the boomers and whatever so of course they'll go and say you know their house is worth like four or five times what they paid for it of course they'll 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 say like yeah invest invest in that and you know that's being charitable as well because you know that's not accounting for inflation and it's yeah, not exactly, accounting yeah. it's not <laughs> but but like let's just let's just go ahead and say yeah it's worth that much um you know that's a great investment but like truthfully most of the places that you're going to invest in now i mean that's this is not true everywhere but you can't be anywhere sort of central or cool anywhere that's de- developed and nice is already going to be at the top so you're paying to live there so that's not an investment really the investments the best investments would be like if you were to invest in a rental property in a not so great area that it will eventually become good and my sister made one of those investments in dc uh in uh was it columbia heights right before it turned and then moved out because you know someone got shot right in front of her place and like you know she had a a one-year-old child so that she moved out and yeah that place was worth way more the next year (laughs) but like that's kind of like for most areas uh what you'd have to do of of course in places like texas like if you know the beauty is that you could be like 20 30 minutes out of town and get some really good investments but who knows how 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 fast those will grow so it's not the same market but as i was saying like i think a lot of the the last generations are like this worked really well for us so you should do that but i think housing is actually a lot more complicated and generally speaking you can go online and find this like rent versus buy calculator and if you honestly put the information in then you can get the answer because usually it'll be something like well unless you plan on Living here for four years, you're not even going to break even by buying, you know? Right, like surely people have worked this out like to pretty much a science at this point, right? My, my friend Ben Jordan, the flashbulb, he um, used machine learning to figure out how much houses around his area in Atlanta were appreciating in value. Wow. And then he bought one in a specific area that now is worth like way more and he's only owned it for a couple of years yeah yeah and, and does he live um, there or, or did he rent it out or what he, he lives there but um okay yeah it's crazy that mach- even machine learning can do that did he also told me um i probably need to like weave the story in such a way that doesn't give much information away because i don't know how much i should talk about it but basically he said he used machine learning or maybe he didn't do it maybe he said you can't use machine learning in a court case because nobody knows how it works like for instance um you machine learning can figure out when someone's like gonna have a heart attack if you give it the right data right but right. nobody knows like how it can tell that is th- that they that were kind of getting into this in in that social dilemma movie how like you know people are talking about like well when ai comes it's like ai's here it's, you yeah. know <laughs> and we all use we all use machine learning whether we realize it or not or we're all part of this experiment but the problem is that because it adapts and because it's such a vast, complex algorithm, there's not really one person or even one group of people who really understand how it works. They might have understood how part of it worked at one point in time, but they, you know, it's kind of already started to evolve on its own and no one's really got their, their hands on how it works. So I, I definitely understand that sentiment, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's its own thing, and we don't entirely know how. No one really knows how it works anymore. At least you know you may know the fundamental concepts behind it, but now it's more like a tool that's used that we don't fully understand. This alien I think that tool. goes that goes for like everything though. There was this uh, podcast I listened to called I Pencil, and basically it was talking about like all the steps for creating a pencil, 
and you know you need someone who like creates the machine uh and then like somebody who creates all the parts of the machine and then like all of those parts created by like hundreds of different people and then like to to make like the little bit of rubber on the end of the pencil is like people are getting like elements and fucking materials from everywhere sending them all to like different plants to be processed in different ways and then all eventually put into this one place to like crush it into a tiny bit of rubber that goes on the right. end of your pencil right. like creating creating the letters like super complicated creating like the the wooden tube that is like hollowed out you know you need a machine to like hollow it out and it, it, t- it kind of talked about like every specific component of pencil creation that's and it's just that's a podcast it was a podcast, yeah. I gotta find that. That sounds fascinating. I love stuff like that because I'll think about that. I remember like Nolly, like our ex bassist and one one of my business partners, like and best friends. Like we used to like get on these like things of like we just pick something ran- random, like oh you know the knob on this amp. Like someone designed that, you know. Mm, someone yeah. had to like invent that, <laughs> you know. That didn't. Mm-hmm. That just wasn't. It feels like it was always there, and you could just grab it from a parts bin. Someone designed the parts bin, <laughs> you know? right. like it's very much that thing. And, and in all of these cases, it's almost crazy, like how much goes into like a pencil and probably how much it costs to make one. But luckily well, I, it was think, profitable um, enough to make a billion of them yeah, for a very s- little cost. When you yeah. scale it. Yeah. But I, I think the, the point and like what this podcast was trying to make you realize is if you can take something as simple and one dimensional as a pencil and break down how complicated that is, then it makes you think about the rest of the world super differently. Cause then you're like, holy shit, like how fucking hard was it to create like, you know, like a can of LaCroix then like, or how hard yeah. was it to create like a, you know, like a computer monitor or like a speaker. It's like way more intense but, but than a probably, pencil. Probably it like every, every one of these things has some insanely fascinating story behind it. Like some chance or some like crazy connection that happened that they're like, Oh, what if we, you know, do this or that? And it kind of changed everything. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of like a materialistic sonder. Uh, I, so I became aware of this term because of, of that band Tesseract. They're friends of ours. They put out an album called Sonder. And I was like, what does that mean? And it basically is like that feeling. It's a, it's a cool expression. It's, it's that feeling of knowing that like everyone has as complex and rich and detailed a life as you have. Like everyone in the world. It's like an overwhelming feeling of that. So you're almost describing like in a material sense, like Sonder in a material sense, where it's like, yep, even a simple pencil is the most complicated life behind it, you know? It's like arguably even maybe potentially more complicated than yeah, anyone's individual right? life. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So it's it's it's, uh, it's pretty nice stuff. Um, real quick. So... Why? Why do you want to get rid of the module? Have you not been using? Have you not been yeah. using it uh, that much, or you find that it's, it's it can't really do stuff that you just can't do already on the the DAW or what? So the more shit that I get rid of, I've noticed that the happier I feel for some reason. I'm like, oh, cool, I have like less shit to worry about. Yeah, and it's also like sitting right in the middle of my room, and this room is like a super nice room with a big window and shit. And it's like if this was just not here, it'd feel super open. And like the whole house would then feel like very open. And there's just no good like place for it. And also, yeah, I barely use it. Like, so it's really just taking up space in the middle of the room for like no reason. And I'm actually keeping some of it. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy these things called um, Happy Ending Racks by a company called Tip Top. And they're basically like a, a sort of like just a, a set of rails that you can mount into a rack and then you can have your modules there. So I have an Argosy desk with the like rack mountable things in the desk 
So I'm going to just like mount two happy ending racks and then have 160 HP of modules there. And that'll be of, enough. Yeah. And then, and then it'll just be like mounted in my desk, like out of the way, not in the middle of the room. And, and it's going to be like maybe 50% of what I've got now. Okay. And, and, and it definitely will be enough. What I'm going to, I'm going to buy another module called an expert sleepers ES eight. And basically what this is, is like a complete um, IO system between your computer and your modular system. And then I'm Ooh. pretty much just going to keep all of the artboard processing units of the modular system. So I'm not going to keep like oscillators and I'm not going to keep like you know, voltage controlled amps or like envelope generators. So none of the synth parts, basically those, those exactly, just yeah. do digitally. Yep, but what I am going to keep is like the plasma drive distortion unit and the filters mm. and like the samplers and all that kind of stuff. So then I can send shit out of Ableton into there, drive the entire rack via right, CV right, tools right. in Ableton and, and yeah. So it's kind of just going to be like an outboard processing unit. Kind of doing something similar to that with like this little pedal board. <laughs> oh, you can't even see it. This little pedal board I've got like in the rack here. Hmm. And you kind just of a pain in the ass to get it to work, but like, yeah. Oh. Man, speaking of like outboard shit, um, I messaged you that one time on Facebook and then deleted a ton of messages when I figured it out. But um, yeah, there's some cool shit you can do with that radial DI, hey, where you can like send. Um, so basically, I don't know if you do this as well. I think you do. Um, where you have like the radial DI and you sort of run your guitar into that cleanly into your into your DAW, and then also you run it through the Axe Effects and record the distorted yeah. signal at the same time yeah and what i've noticed doing that is um once you get the clean signal uh into ableton because it's so much like cleaner it's not just a big sausage of distortion it's got like nice transients and shit yep. you can edit it really nicely with warping and like cut all the little silences out and like get the the rhythm like super perfect and then reamp it through the axe effects and it sounds so fucking good yeah so actually you know that's what i used to do that's what we did on periphery four for example and 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 what I'd do is I'd set it up as a uh, parallel track. So it would always be recording and editing both at once. Right. But then you can use the transients as, because I, like you say, like the distorted track just looks like a big sausage of distortion, but you can use your transient as like, as like the guidelines. It's like, okay, well like this is where I cut, this is where I move it to. So it makes it way easier to edit and slide things around. But lately what I've been doing um, for my solo album is I've just been tracking into like, um, the neural, uh, the, the, the neural amps and my, uh, and my, uh, tone forge, uh, my, my JST tone forge amp, like amp SIM on the computer, because then you just capture the DI and, uh, it's, uh, then you can reamp it later. So the plan is to reamp it later, but like for capturing it, like they're good enough quality and you can get a good mix going, but like, you're basically hearing how it will sound reamped you know, making sure that it's kosher there. And then it should translate sort of one-to-one. -one. And the beauty, the beautiful thing about reamping is like, if there are any sort of hard cuts, like, especially if you have distortion, it just, it just smooths all that stuff out. You mm. like crossfade. You don't need to crossfade. You could just yeah, cut stuff you, in and it'll just sound like you just played it. <laughs> yeah. It gets masked. That's, that's one thing about like dubstep as well. It's super easy to mix. A lot of people um, who write electronic music are writing this kind of like softer stuff, right? Like house is like kind of softer and cleaner and, you know, mm -hmm. IDM stuff and, and experimental music is like, it's all soft and clean and has like very nice transients and it's very mm -hmm. hard to mix. But with dubstep, you literally never turn anything down. You only turn shit up. <laughs> and just like the more shit you turn up and push into the limiter, the more it just like squashes it together and sounds yeah. good. Right. It just covers, it covers everything up. Yeah, and it's funny you say it's everything. easier to mix. I, I, I have a couple electronic songs on the, uh, the, the solo album I'm working on and I'm not good at mixing. 
Well, you might be thinking about it too traditionally, you know, because you would never do that with metal. Like you would never just like keep putting elements in and just throwing. No, like, metal is the opposite them. is how do we cut stuff out for everything to fit? It's Yeah, exactly. And Fair I'm enough. aware I'm aware it's different. But it's also I'm not as you know, I'm sure sound design, electronic sound design is second nature to you in the same way that like mixing metal and rock is. There's a lot of stuff I don't don't even think about anymore, you know? Yeah, but, well, it's just very untraditional. Like I, I taught the sound design course at Berkeley um last year and uh it was what i noticed when i was trying to teach people is everything i would tell them they'd be like well in our mixing class our mixing teacher told us never to do that and i was like yeah well this is sound design class it's different <laughs> so it's like literally take everything your mixing teacher said and do the opposite and you have well, sound i've design never class. i've never had a mixing teacher i've always kind of done it by ear and just learned from friends so like i'd learn from you and for, from whatever but if there's ever something i've learned is that there's no rules with this. I mean, there's guidelines like, you know, you probably don't want your mix to clip, you know, uh, but maybe you do. Maybe that's an effect. It's there's 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 guidelines because they got to teach something. And there's there's sort of if you if you use them as like guidelines so that you understand where the status quo is at and that it's totally OK to break them to sort of experiment, you know, that's fine. But I think people sometimes get a little. Stark is like, well, no, this is the only way to do it. It's like, dude, there's about a thousand ways to skin this cat. That's why it's an art form. Well, but, so I, I've been recently getting massively into chess mm. and um, I've been getting lessons from like uh, masters and stuff like that. And uh, Gary Kasparov, who was like the world champion for a long time, has a good quote, which is um, to be an expert at something, you need to know all of the rules. But to be a master at something, you need to know exactly when the right time is to break those rules. Right, right. That's, a, that's, a, that applies, that's a good way of saying yeah, it applies in chess a lot, actually, because it's like you need to know all the fundamentals and principles to like get even close to the master level. But then to be like a world champion, you need to know exactly when it's fine to to do shit yeah. that you're not supposed to do in chess. Like that, that, that's a great quote. And I mean, I'll say even like with like the, the metal stuff, you know, like we're dealing with styles of music that are very unconventional, even the electronic stuff. It's like mixing books made 20 years ago, 10 years ago, even wouldn't be able to account for some of the stuff that we were doing, because whether it's plugins processing power techniques or whatever right but like even the way that like i approach the uh the 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 metal mixes and this is something that nolly taught me and now i swear by it which is uh which is top down mixing which is like you start with like you do the the, the cardinal sin you, you mix into a master bus that's already going and that won't even be your final master bus because we'll send it send it off to a mastering well, engineer well this is the thing is like a lot of people pull me up on this too when i'm streaming they're like what you write into a limiter and it's like yes because eventually it's going to get limited you're not going to release it unlimited right. so you want to know how your shit's going to and the limiters it's a limiter. doing things the limiter is yeah. chopping your transients in a really specific way it's not saying that you could just account for on the front end and hope it works out exactly yeah that's why a lot of people i think have this issue where they do a really nice mix um into right. not not a limiter and then at the end they take the limiter off send it to mastering and then they're like what happened and it's like uh, well, you didn't account for like the fact that the limit is going to destroy all your transients. So you didn't put enough transients in the first place. And, and, and it's even, it's even more crazy. Like there's a, like one of the things that I love is I love a really punchy snare, but the snare is just about the first thing that'll get destroyed in a metal mix because it's sitting right in the mid range where the distorted guitars are eating it alive. If you have a grindy bass, that's eating it alive and the vocals are eating. And basically every element is sitting right in the space that a beautiful, nice punchy snare would sit in. So you have to get creative if you want it to really punch through. And like, you know, one of the things that we do is I actually compress it to be super pokey. 
So if you were to hear it without the limiter, you'd be like, oh, like that that's way too much like top end transient on that on that snare. Um, and then um, I actually create the sustain through a parallel compression bus that's just smashed um, that that because it's smashed emphasizes the sustain and has very little transient on the snare, you know, and also has the kick going through it and other kit elements. So they're sort of bouncing and pumping against each other. Right. And then I have a compressor set, uh, an SSL style compressor that's basically just reading the snare. So I'm having it actually high pass and ignore mostly the kicks because a lot of what you get with these uh, bus compressors is they're reacting to the kick and snare and you get really pumpy mixes. But actually all it's doing is it ducks the mix every time it hits a hard snare hit. So that way that snare gives it the illusion of power because it's just could ducking it? everything, right? And could then you, um, the, the or then the limiter, yeah, it's just the last thing. The limiter is is the thing that will soften up that snare transient. So the limiter is set in a very specific way. I have a limiter I like to use and I'll dial it in for the mix. Um, and when I go to the mastering engineer, I'll tell them what I'm using and I'll give them reference. I'll be like, you know, this is what I'm trying to recreate and they'll do a, a better job. But like, um, that is actually what's chopping that pokey snare and then the snare sounds perfect. But it's like, these are the hoops you have to jump through if you want to have a snare that cuts through the mix that isn't just like layered with like, you know, one shot samples or something, you know? Yeah, um, so like you were saying, uh, the snare sits like right in the same range as the vocals and the and the guitar and the bass and all that. Have you tried um, putting a multiband compressor on literally everything except the snare and then just like having that mid-range duck every time the snare hits? Yeah, you, you I, and, I, and I, I do that on the guitars and I do that on the bass. Um, I do, I do multiband compression, but the problem is that you can, you can create a mix that pumps in a very weird way. You have to do it very, very strategically. And this is the thing is like, like pumping and ducking are like hallmarks of electronic music, you know, mm. having, having the, the side chain, you know, uh, kick and snare and all that stuff is literally used as an effect in in metal that is not you want to do it in a way where it sounds like it's not there you want it to just sound like everything is punching through so that's where you got to be really careful and what i found is i i do that i am doing that currently but you have to be so careful with your application you have to use so little to where it's almost not a benefit and like it just in the grand scheme of things is slightly better than without it but it's not like a game-changing thing it's literally a metal mix is like, how can I clean up just this little bit here and this little bit there and create a bit more space here and there. And it's all about taking away. <laughs> You're never adding shit. You're always just taking away, taking away, taking away. Uh, so that's why I like, like, you know, doing the electronic stuff is really fun. And it's like a completely different uh, mindset. And I'm not okay. good at it, but I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn how to do it by doing it. So maybe right. I'll get some of your tips, you know? Yeah, I'd be happy to show you some stuff. Um, the other thing with metal is kind of like while you're making it, you're sort of constrained to the fact that this will one day be performed live, so it has to be playable. Um, yeah, whereas yeah, with electronic yeah. music, you can kind of just be like, oh, yeah, fuck <laughs> it, I'll do whatever I want because it's always going to be playable because I'm just going to play the actual well, it's funny. It's funny you say that. This is why I'm glad I have, like, side projects. And I've got, like, um, and the solo project, but I've got, like, my side project with Mark Haunted Shores, which is our crazy, like, death metal tech black metal project and that stuff is really hard to play like i suppose if we ever had to play it we probably could figure it out 
but it's kind of written without that responsibility because yeah, when I'm doing the periphery stuff, it's like, we're going to have to play this. This stuff needs to be playable. It can't be like purely compositional. Um, and we straddle that line because there's a lot of stuff where I'm like, well, this sounds awesome. So we're just gonna have to figure it out. And then you, you, you spend a lot of time practicing just so you could play this one part that sounded the way you wanted to sound, but it's actually pretty difficult to play or not really conducive to guitar. Cause it's like something I composed for like virtual violin or for synth or something. And it's just, these are the notes I wanted to hear. And wow, it's super awkward to play on guitar, but I doubled it with guitar. So here we go. Just, um, you can't just like adapt it for live. Like Lars Ulrich does with the one double kicks or whatever. Ooh, uh, that is not a path that we've gone down yet. And I'd, I'd like to avoid that if possible, you know, teach their own, but like, yeah, that's not, uh, you know, I, with that said, I think when you go to a periphery show, like, uh, I mean, like the, the understanding that, that, that we have with our fans is like our studio albums are concepts. Like it's like, this is something that we wanted to write. This is the ideal way that it should be. It's a composition. And then the live show is a live show. And like, we're going to play these songs. We're going to recreate them as best as we can. But if you want to hear the album, go listen to the album. This is where it's very different from electronic shows where you're basically hearing the album. Like, I'm sure, I'm sure there's differences and there's stuff that you can do, but you're hearing like album quality and all that stuff live, like live bands don't sound as good as the album in metal, you know, uh, it takes quite a bit of mixing for that to be the case. So like, it's, it's kind of this understanding. It's a different thing. It's a live energy. We're jumping around. We're, 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 we're messing about having a good time. We're not playing clinical performances, you know? So there are screw ups and there are changes and there's differences and it's a lot more raw. And that's sort of what you go to a live show for. And then you can listen to the album, I guess with like EDM, it's much more like one in the same, you know? Well, for, yeah, for EDM, you don't go to the show for the awe of the performers. Like, for, right. you, you go to a metal show to watch people play shit that could very easily be fucked up and they're skating on thin ice the entire time. Right, and that's why right. it's awesome to watch because you're like, oh, this is so, like, you know, it's they're on the edge. Like, Yeah, it could go off the rails at any yeah, point. Exactly. It this does could, sometimes. Could, <laughs> exactly. Like, this could go so wrong. And that's why it's, like, fun to watch because it's so fuck upable. But, like, with electronic music, it's really like you're going to watch a movie, you know? Like, I, I yeah. said this to Dead, uh, Dead Mouse once. I was chatting with him when we played at Red Rocks together. And I was like, so do you just, like, kind of play the the same set with the same visuals the same every night? And he's like, he's like, yeah, what are you fucking... Like, you don't go to It and expect a different <laughs> movie the second time. Like, <laughs> You know, there's, there's a lot of... There's a lot, there's a lot about the EDM scene that I don't know or understand. I was never razor. I appreciate the music and I love it. Uh, and I, you know, I try to dabble in it myself because I'm so fascinated with it, but like, as far as the inside and the scene and like the musicians and the dynamics of it, it's so different. It's so different from rock and metal and stuff like that. And then like, you've like concisely explained a few things to me that like, were so alien. Like, for example, like the fact that you will play other people's songs in your set, right. And not even necessarily tell them that you're playing another song, you know, like, yeah. If I were to no, like play most of the time, you won't tell them you're playing another well, person's song. So let's, and it'll be like a contemporary. It won't be like a classic song that everyone knows from like 20 years. It's not like covering a Metallica song where it's like, everyone will know this would be like us playing like a Pliny song or a Tesseract song in our set and not telling anyone and do letting you, people think that we're playing it. Like, do you understand? Be, um, do you understand the concept of a dub plate? 
what's that a, a dub plate is like an unreleased song that one of your friends gives you that's like finished and it's like a song that they plan to release eventually but it's not released yet so like djs will play a lot of dub plates in their set which is so like partially the reason you'll come to like a, a show of mine or whatever is uh to kind of hear a bunch of shit that you wouldn't be able to hear any other way because like my friends have given me a bunch of tunes right and likewise for their shows as well like you would go to watch them and they'd play like my tunes that aren't released yet and stuff like that yeah you see that's so it, such a crazy more, concept it that's... would be more like if Pliny, like showed you how to play a bunch of unreleased shit by them and then, <laughs> yeah, and then we you played play it before yeah. his album was out dude yeah, yeah. that would end friendships you know that yeah. would like that they would you'd be blacklisted but then but then I, but like taking the simpler example i asked you like wait so like they're cool with that and you, and you gave me the best answer you were like well think of it this way it's like if you had a friend, you know how like you'll show someone like an artist that you discovered and you're all stoked about him. Like, yeah, I do it all the time. He's like, and then you're like, well, imagine doing that in a room full of people. I'm like, that's a great example. You know, it's like, yeah, here I exactly. am. I'm showing you guys. I'm showing like a thousand people like this song, I think is really sick. I'm like, I love that. I totally, but, I totally get it. But you know? not only that, you're like you're not just showing it to them in the context of like, you know how you'll go down like a YouTube rabbit hole with your friends and they'll show you one thing and you're like, oh, it reminds me of this thing. And then you'll yeah, show them that yeah, thing yeah. and then they should like, it, it's kind of like the thing that you're showing them is in context to the last thing that they just showed you, right? Yeah. And it's the same with the DJ set. It's like you're putting it in context as well because it's like not only are you showing them something you're super excited about, you're showing it to them in an order that you think it should be heard as well so that they yeah. understand it in the same way that you understand it. I mean, that only makes it better, of course. Um but it, it's amazing because like, I remember like when you first, when I first sort of understood what was happening, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I don't know how I feel about that. And after you explained it, I was like, I'm sold. That's great. That's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a fucking awesome. And, and I like that. I like that. I guess like, as you said, like when you highlight that, like the difference is like, I mean, really we do very different things live. Like we're performing. And like you said, like, like part of the, the, the beauty of it is like, like, can we pull this off? And they're like, can they pull this off? You know? And then if we do, it's great for everybody. If we don't, it's rock and roll, whatever. But like in your case, like everyone knows you're not up there working hard. Like 99% of the hard work was put beforehand to make it so that this would be an amazing experience. So then you can also show in that moment, some other work that was 99% done beforehand and would sound really cool. And because of that understanding, it like completely changes the rules rules or whatever i guess whatever socially acceptable it's a, yeah it's a very different value system like you don't go to yeah. the shows for the same reasons for sure yeah and it just and it's just interesting to explore like the dynamics of that and the, the 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 ripple effects of that because yeah dude like if like if i was showing my friends like a, a song that was on our upcoming album then i heard that at a show i saw a video of them playing it live i'd be like all right get the lawyers <laughs> you know like <laughs> Yeah. It's it would be it would be so ugly and it's kind of refreshing to hear that in a context where I'm like that's sick you know do you think in some ways that's why the electronic industry has sort of um surpassed the metal industry in terms of like how big it is um because you know, like I, I feel this way about the tech industry right like what happened is like a bunch of people who were techies just made a bunch of shit like really good tools that took them weeks to make. And they were just like, you know what? I'm just going to upload this to GitHub. Anyone can use this library free of charge. And as a result, it's like tech has just built on the shoulders of other techies so quickly that now it's by well, far. If you the think EDM is a tech genre as well, 
you know? Well, I think in the sense that like people are willing to share and just do whatever they want and there's no like real closed doors between people that much. But a lot like, of these a- guys are programmers too, you know, and you have to have like an understanding of that. So it might be that same sort of mentality leaking through. They're like, well, just as I'd give you a, a plug-in, here's a song or whatever, you know? Yeah. Right, but Check I guess what out. I'm saying is like the fact that everyone's so like open to sharing and playing each other's tunes and all of that yeah. kind of shit has just like allowed the shit to grow like exponentially. Versus- I w- I, I, I'm sure it's a factor. If I, if I were to, as an outsider, make a couple observations, one, I mean, electronic... The problem, problem with metal, especially, is that it's an abrasive style of music. And it's this, the kind of thing that a lot of people don't like or don't well, so realize like, they would like so is dubstep though mm, i feel like i feel like if we're talking about just in terms of pure abrasiveness no like they don't have distorted guitar like there's a lot of very unpleasant sounds and they're screaming there's things that are like i guess on on like a largely subjective level just not good sounds and then there may be like contextualized and mixed in a way that makes them appealing if you understand it right but i think a good example of what i'm talking about is is Meshuggah. Mm. A lot of people who listen to their records or whatever will be like, this is absolute noise and garbage. But then <laughs> if they see them live, we'll be like, that was life changing. That was incredible. But very much like we were talking about, like the customer, right? Subscribers or whatever. It's like, these guys are not customers. Like they're not going to go and go check out Mashuga unless someone drags them there, you know? And then they'll be like, wow, I had no idea. And that's that's the way I see metal being metal. The adoption is usually like someone sort of inducted into it. It's very tough to sell it, but it's something like you have a friend or whatever. It's like, whoa, what is that? That's interesting. Okay. And then maybe I'm a bit out of my comfort zone, but I'll check that out. Wow, that was actually really cool. Now I think I, I have the momentum to get to this on my own. I think electronic music, EDM, all that, just as a baseline, is a much more palatable sound it's a very beautiful right. sound like you can it, just end up in a club and like hear it by accident sort of thing yeah or think of it this way if you have electronic music on in the background no one is gonna say a goddamn thing if you yeah. have metal in the background probably a lot of people will be like turn that shit off so right 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 there you've got this massive barrier to entry and then second of all just on an objective level edm shows sound phenomenal you know, they are pushing the limits of the sound system. Like metal shows are about mitigating sonic disaster again. And you don't, you have a 10th of the tools and the time that you would have in the studio and you have to do it live. And if you hear like all the proof you need is listen to a board mix, listen to an unmixed board mix of what is being mixed for the room coming out. It'll sound fucking terrible, but like, you know, you could then mix it to be better, but that is effectively what's coming out of the speakers. And you're sort of just, trying to put together and make it sound good. EDM makes it sound like you've got the most expensive sound system. It is orders of magnitude better sounding. So already you're starting with a better baseline. Then you go there and you're like, I just felt bass that shook me in a way that I've never felt before. In the same way that like being in the Lamborghini made you feel feelings that you can't feel in other ways. There's things that you can experience like sonically and physically at an EDM show that are very tough to experience in any other place. And you won't feel them at a metal show where like you're operating at like 30% 30% of what like the PA can actually do because it's a not a very good mix, right? So I think I think it's always got the advantage. It's got the mass appeal. And then the production. Production's huge. You can afford to put more in production than we can. And we're more about the live show and interacting and like the the human aspect. And you know, we could we might be splitting hairs, but man, some of these, you know, I saw I saw Dead Mouse with a cube and I was like, Jesus Christ, like 
yeah, his production that's value. Expensive, man. Like, so of he, he's actually really smart about it. He owns the production company that has his cube, and when he's not using it, he rents all the LED walls out to other people. Yeah, I mean that's then that's that's extremely smart. Um, and it actually reminds me a little bit of like the Rammstein model, and that's like a band that sort of like crossed over and does the show. I don't like Rammstein. I know a lot of people don't, and they're all like, you got to see them live. It's an experience, and everything's on fire, and the singer sings a song on fire. They own the pyrotechnics. <laughs> he sets himself they, on fire? He sets himself on fire and sings on fire. He's like wearing one of those fire suits. And they own the pyrotechnic company as well and rent it out to other bands. So they're doing that same sort of thing. But it's an insane production. I'm sure it costs an insane amount of money. They do very well for themselves. They're like one of the biggest bands in the world and in Germany as well. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, this is that that's maybe the exception that proves the rule. It's it's a it's it's a it's a tough thing. And um, again, I don't think it's a it's a comparison. But I think if you're just looking for data and some some objective facts, I think there's a bunch of factors. But I'm sure your point does not hurt either. The fact that people are spreading it around and you might hear something and you be like, oh, what's that? You know, what's that? And then just creates awareness okay. in a way that. When you come to see a periphery show, the only bands you'll be aware of are the opening bands. So do, do you do you think do you think you would be doing better as a band or worse as a band if uh, at every Pliny show and every Tesseract show and every whatever show like Animals as Leaders or whatever they got on the mic and were like, "Hey, here's a new song from Periphery." Like they did a 50 day tour and every show they played on that tour they were like, "Here's a new Periphery song that's unreleased. We're going to play it for you." And like, do you th- you surely wouldn't be doing worse as a band, right? You'd be doing... It's so hard to say because it's less... I'm literally it, saying like multiple other bands are telling people about it you. Would you it would just be such a culture shift. If the the crowd was was accepting of it, it would probably be a good thing. But like right, that's yeah. not a shift that could happen right now because right now people would be like, what the fuck's going on? <laughs> uh, but like, like that's yeah, not what I signed be. up for. But yeah. yeah, no, I'm sure that would be a benefit. I'm sure if like we were starting from scratch and it's like, okay, this is the first metal show and this is the dynamic. Yeah, that probably that could only help, as you said. Um, yeah, but, so a lot of, I mean, you, you're not obligated to get on the mic and say like, hey, here's an unreleased Mr. Bill tune or whatever. But a lot of people who who play my tunes out do that. Um, okay. I don't. Is there do etiquette I, behind that? Is there like kind of an no, understood? I mean, I don't get on the mic, but I mean, like if somebody films the thing and hits me up on social media and says what what is this and i um see the post then i'll 100 percent tag the person whose tune it is if it's not mine okay let me ask you this has anyone just tried to claim someone else's song as their own oh that happens all the time but i mean and like what, you don't what get, happens then what happens so then? You, you don't really get that live um like no one plays somebody else's tune and goes like this is my new unreleased song like okay 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 that doesn't that's happen what but like anything, you get plagiarism, right? Like where somebody yeah. will write, write a song and release it and everyone will be like, hmm, that sounds awfully similar to this other song. And then right, there'll right, be a lot of right. questionable stuff. Like for instance, there was a culprit song called, um, it was with this guy called, Z- I can't remember, it starts with a Z, Zen, Zen, uh, whatever. Um, so culprit wrote a song with some guy and then this other guy called Dyro wrote a song that sounds literally identical to it. And there was like this huge thing between it. But uh, I mean, I mean Dyro, that makes sense. Dyro's song didn't get taken down as far as I know it's still up and there was no like lawsuit over it or anything so nothing happened but I think that's just because culprit decided he didn't want to start a lawsuit but I'm sure it can hurt your cred at that point you know be like hey I mean Dyro's pretty big but yeah I mean at the same time there's a we, bunch of we've culprit got we've gotten that we have that song Icarus Lives and there have been a few bands that have popped up with like that first riff from Icarus Lives 
or some variation of it. Like, well, there's only so many like options, right? Like, I mean, there's seven notes. There's a couple of time signatures that we like, and there's um, you say I mean, that, and I'd say depending on the style. Like, if you're gonna do like campfire chords or like you know like like basic four chord structure, that limits you. But like when you're talking about Icarus Lives, that's a, it's a, first of all a really long phrase. Second of all, it's very syncopated. So at any point, you could just change a couple things and make it different. So when it's like very similar, it's it sounds like intent, you know, mm, it's yeah. not like you accidentally stumble on it. And maybe, you know, someone didn't realize that they had it stuck in the, their head and they thought <laughs> it was an original thing. Yeah, that's um, called um, cryptomnesia. Is that I what think. that is? Yeah, when yeah. you like hear something and you forgot that you heard it and you don't know where it came from, but then you remake it. Like it happens a lot. I mean, of hell, I've done that before. You know, like it, I think it happens to everybody. You think like, oh, this this yeah. sounds great. Oh, it doesn't sound great because I invented it. It sounds it's, great because I liked it when I heard it. <laughs> it specifically happens a lot in comedy, like stand up comedy. Yeah, yep, yep, pe- yep. People will hear like a concept or a joke or an idea, and then they'll think like, oh, that's a funny concept that I totally just thought of, and then like try and come up with their own. Absolutely, joke. absolutely. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen uh, with with music, but I actually think that we've sort of uh, we've sort of uh, barricaded ourselves against that a little bit, just because like you know with with our style like progressive metal or gent or whatever, it's like it's all about like long phrases and syncopation and stuff like that. So it's not impossible to have things, and in in some ways, a lot of it has the same vibe, just because it's sort of you know, a lot of open note syncopated stuff and that will sound similar, but to end up with a similar pattern, especially if there's some variation, like the riff in Icarus Lives is not just like open notes. So it's interesting. If I ever showed you some of these, you'd be like, oh, okay. Like that's kind of funny, you know, <laughs> right, but, uh, but, but we've never, we've never done. I think in some cases we'll just point it out and like, you know, our fans will rip them apart, but like, we don't ever, like we've never taken anyone to court and there's no need to. It's like, well, no that, one wins in court. Like, yeah, ever. it's like there's no, there's no, there's no point. It'll just let sort of the fans handle it, like, and in you know, in one case, there was a guy. I'd say this was like one of the more blatant ones because, like, the song, like, he just took the first riff from the song, and the rest was just like this weird prog song. But like, um, it was so specific. And I remember just thinking, like, why didn't you just change up a few more things? You know, <laughs> it could have been different. We wouldn't have recognized it. But it was like. The first, yeah, it was the first two riffs. And the second one, the second riff, again, is a very long phrase with very specific syncopation. And he'd matched everything, including like the, the feel the, on the drums. So it was Icarus Lives. And what was the song that the person? Uh, uh, what was the band? So I think it was this guy called Neil Wakefield. And, it, and the song was called Digital Mind. And he basically got shamed. It was like a video. He got shamed into changing it. So I don't even think you can find it. Now the version <laughs> has a... For the first two sections are just different. Like he rewrote it, hmm. uh, and like uh, and it's uh, uh, it was it was funny because it was like the most egregious one we've ever seen. That one was like that's not you forgot or like that was in the back of your mind. That was you trying to sneak it. You're in a different style. You thought no one would notice because <laughs> uh, it's so specific. It was like right right on the money, and he just kind of changed some of the notes around, but the rhythms were exactly the same. The feel was exactly the same. Uh, it might have even been the same tempo. Uh, and then he changed it after he got shamed. <laughs> so it was kind of like, you know, but I don't, I don't care. We thought it was funny. We just thought it was hilarious. Cause at the end of the day, it wasn't taking money out of our pockets. It wasn't messing with our business. You yeah, know, someone like copying your shit is kind of like a good, like a form of flattery really. Exactly. 
I just, I was just, I couldn't put myself in the mind of someone who would do that. I could understand, like, if it's like, you know, oh, uh, like this little thing, like I heard it somewhere else, I put it in mine, and that's actually a ripoff. But like to actually like ape something, and be like, okay, I'm gonna take these two riffs in succession and <laughs> copy them <laughs> exactly into my song and hope no one notices like that just that does not work in my brain like so i just thought i was like i don't i was almost like fascinated by it you know hey man we've been talking for like 80 minutes yeah and i gotta and go I anyways this, yeah we could do another do we could do another one of the, i always love talking to you yeah likewise man i would love to do another i mean one this is point. just this is just what it's like when we hang out it's just we're doing it and recording it <laughs> yeah <laughs> so. exactly yeah i think so. it's good it's um yeah, good to get one of these recorded with you. I think people will find it hopefully interesting. Yeah, hopefully. Um, I, I, and if they don't, at least I had another good conversation with you. Right. <laughs> but we <laughs> can do it anytime, man. You know, I'm around. Sick. Yeah, I appreciate that. All right, man. Well, thanks for coming on. Of course, dude. Of course. Hey, thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. These episodes are edited and uploaded by Robert Fumo of 303podpro.com. You can also support the show, get early access to episodes and hear bonus content by going to patreon.com forward slash Mr. Bill's Tunes and becoming a patron. Uh, please rate and review on iTunes unless you're going to be a little shit about it. And all the links to my various platforms are at mrbillstunes.com. Thank you. Hello,